0: All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, an incredible privilege to continue in our journey through to Tehillim together. So we are officially in the course of our sheer <clears throat> excuse me, Optica to Kapital Samecha 68. Uh, but, but as you can see, Emir session this week and most probably for next week as well, we're going to go backwards a little bit, go back in time. I think we'd all like to go back in time for a variety of different reasons, but at least in this year we can go back in time a little bit and focus actually on capital base. Now we studied capital base probably about uh, ten years ago. I don't know actually. I don't even know how long. Definitely more than six, seven, eight years ago. <clears throat> no, maybe not ten years ago. But we went ahead and we started capital base. So we're not going to go through the whole capital. What I wanted to kind of isolate a little bit is a dramatic theme which comes out in this capital, and depending how much we get through this week we'll see whether or not we do same next week or continue in bays but it's actually interestingly enough a theme that presents itself not only in capitol 68 chapter 68 but through any parts of tillum so let's begin by taking a look at Perak base so this is a capital certainly again the kapitlach towards the beginning of of safer tillim are the ones that we're generally a bit more familiar with and david hamalech writes <coughs> he says lama ragshugayim." Why have nations gathered, and why do kingdoms think vain things? (laughs) Kings of a land stand up, nobles take counsel together against the Lord and against His Anointed. Yosh Nenaskaus Mos Rosemo Vinash Avosemo And they say, Let us break their bands and let us cast off their cords from us. Yoshe Basham Yishaq Adunaiil Ag Lamo. He who dwells in heaven laughs. Hashem, the Lord mocks them. So remember, the capital, the capital, well, let's actually we'll just finish it up. His Vanina Sahti Malkial Tion Har kochi pasuk 6 but i have enthroned my king on zion on sion my holy mount i will tell i will tell of the decree the lord said to me you are my son this day i have begotten you skip a little bit to paragraph i'm sorry to 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 pasuk Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with quaking. Arm yourselves with purity, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For in a moment his wrath will be kindled, the praises of all who take refuge in him. Okay, so like many times as we go through. Dale. and when we read the capital in English, we sometimes find ourselves trying to figure out what exactly David HaMelech is trying to talk about. So let's talk about just thematically. So thematically, what we begin to see over this capital is David HaMelech kind of painting a picture between about the tension between the kings of the world and the Ribano shal olam. That a king, you know, it's it's an interesting idea. Kings, as we know, truth is not just kings. Anyone within a leadership position. <laughs> is most prone to arrogance, right? Generally, poor people don't become arrogant, right? Or for that matter, again, you know, helpless people or or strengthless people, people without prominence, people without position, people without influence, tend not to be so arrogant. It's those who are vested with power, with influence, with wealth, that are more prone to arrogance. Just as an interesting aside, it's fast, so again, It's, well, let me tell you the interesting aside first. It's interesting to see if you look at the way most monarchies work you know i was uh i was reading you know uh you know prince philip in england was you know was hospitalized with something and you know whenever something happens in the monarchy in england it's, it's it's a big thing monarchy monarchy is big stuff you know we live in a different kind of culture because today culture is all about deconstructing authority right no one likes authority anymore so the best thing you could do is find something blemished or find something wrong in someone in an authority position and bring them down, sometimes that feels like that is the height of societal accomplishment. But monarchies are very of Monarchies are very important. And what does a monarchy pride itself on more than anything? Right? Pedigree. Right? Monarchy is all about pedigree. I'm the son of this one, the grandson of this one, the great grandson of this one. And you know, it's interesting because if you think about this for just a moment, what's the pedigree? What's the pedigree of Jewish monarchy? What's the pedigree of Jewish monarchy? So the pedigree of Jewish monarchy is quite interesting. And often there are stories that leave us like with a little bit of an eyebrow raised, right? Monarchy begins with the story of Yehuda and Tamar. A story we're familiar with, right? A story that when our kids come home and ask us questions, we very quickly like to change the subject because it's a strange story, right? Yehuda gives Tamar to two of his sons. They both die because they don't want to impregnate her. He promises that he's going to give her to the third son. He doesn't give her to the third son. Tamar is a smart woman. She dresses up as a harlot. She disguises herself. She sits by the side of the road and Yehuda impregnates her and then as she's, as she's about to go ahead and be executed for what they perceive to be as a lack of morality Thomas says by the way the father of my child is the one who owns this cloak and signet ring that's the genesis of our monarchy one more story <clears throat> where else does monarchy come from? Rus and you know the story of Rus is Rus sneaks into the granary at night lay, lays down by the feet of Boaz no one else is there and she tells Boaz tell me what to do what like like the, the, this is the genesis of our monarchy it's it, it's it's interesting the ma'aral of Prague explains that the baruch Hu did this by design and it's designed to keep the monarchy humble that should a king get a bit too carried away for himself you know what the best part is we say them calm down Let's open up a Chumash Bereshis. Let's talk about the Alter Baba and the Alter zayda. right? Everybody likes to talk about their grandparents. Let's just talk about how you came into the world. Okay, obviously, it's HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He runs the world. Everything was part of a divine plan. But these stories make us blush a little bit, as as, as they should. And it's designed to keep the monarchy humble. In this capital, David HaMelech speaks about the idea that the monarchs of the world become so arrogant, Ribbono Shel that they think they could even contend with you. They become so arrogant that they think that they could even overpower you. And so David HaMelech says, why do the nations think such vain things? What are the vain things that the nations of the world think? They think that they can literally conquer, overcome and vanquish God. So David HaMelech then develops that theme. So I want to share with you a couple of interesting ideas about this capital and really focus on one particular Pasek. If you take a look at number two, the Gemara Maseches Barachas makes an amazing observation. The Gemara says, <laughs> excuse me, call parasha al david, pasach baba ashrei baba ashrei. Any capital that was especially near and dear to David Amalek's heart, begins with ashrei and ends with ashrei. Now, the Gemara goes with the approach, as many commentaries understand, which is not a topic for today, that, <coughs> Kapitlach Aleph and Bays chapters one and two in Sefer Tilim are in fact one chapter, and if you look at it, if you look at it, remember chapter one begins with Ashrei ha'ish, praiseworthy is the person, and and parak pere- 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 Base, chapter two ends with the phrase Ashrei Kol chosebo. praiseworthy are those who take refuge in God. So the Gemara here makes an amazing observation, and the Gemara says, by the way, any capital, any chapter in Tehillim. Which begins with Ashrei and ends with Ashrei, David HaMelech is telling us embedded in this chapter is a dramatic life lesson. <clears throat> so the question is what's the life lesson? What's the dramatic life lesson that King David is trying to convey to us in chapter 2? So dramatic that the capital begins with Ashrei praiseworthy. Ends with Ashray. What is the dramatic embedded message? So, interestingly enough, if you take a look at number four, so Rashi quotes over here. Remember, as we've seen many times throughout our journey into Helam, to appreciate what David Amalek is saying, you have to first understand what the context is, right? What's happening all around? What, what's the trigger? What's the contextual trigger that is causing King David to go ahead and write this particular capital? So, if you take a look at number four, Rashi says, so, interestingly enough, there are two different approaches to understanding the context of this capital. So, Rashi quotes the first opinion, excuse me, and in the first opinion, Rashi says. That this is actually a messianically oriented capital. That David Amalch is talking about that when the Mashiach comes and the prominence of the Jewish nation is catapulted, the, the vain kings of the nations of the world will still think that they can go ahead and contend with God. But the might of God will ultimately bring them to their knees. But Rashi says, I don't think that's really it. nachon lefosro al Says says Rashi something amazing. I think that this capital is actually more referring to a specific episode in King David's life. Which episode is it referring to? <speaking> in <Hebrew> so interestingly enough, Rashi understands that this capital, David the authored this capital as a response to a flare-up with the Philistines, with the Plishtim. Now, what's the context? If you take a look at number five, so number five represents a very beautiful section. Remember, again, we've spoken about this many times throughout our journey into hillim David Amalek never wanted to be king. He never wanted it. And in fact, not only did he not want it, but he pretty much did everything and anything in his power to get away from it. Remember, even after he's anointed by Shmuel, he does not proclaim himself as king. When Sha'ol is running after him to kill him. David says, I don't want the throne, and in fact, even after Shaul and Yonah's son are killed in battle, David does not assert his full right over the throne. Instead what ends up happening is David HaMelech retreats to his own tribe and establishes a small kingdom in Yehuda, specifically in Hebron. In Hebron, Hebron was the seat of David HaMelech's original monarchy, and again, that's David's kingdom. He, he, he is not interested, no interest on foisting his rulership on anyone else. But in number five, something very beautiful happens. So something very beautiful happens. Finally, finally, the Jewish nation becomes one. So representatives of the kingdom of Israel of Israel, because remember again the kingdom really there's two. Did, well, there there was no uh, there was a kingdom, but essentially after David Amalek was anointed as king, kind of his tribe gravitated towards him, and the rest of Klal Yisrael gravitated towards Shaul. So remember again at this point in time, Shaul is dead. David is king over Yehuda in Hevron. Representatives of the rest of the Jewish people come to David, and they say to David. We want you to be our king. We want you to be our king. They anointed David as king over the entire Jewish people. David was 30 years old when he was anointed king over Klav Yisrael and ultimately, he reigned for 40 years. So he reigned in Hebron for seven years and he reigned over king of the entire Jewish nation for the remaining 33 years of his reign. So what happens right afterwards? Source number six. So the plishtim, now remember, the plishtim we're were riding high right now because remember in the last war of the Jewish people against the Plishtim, the Plishtim won. Not only did they win, but they murdered the king of the Jewish people, they murdered Shaul and his son. So the Plishtim here, al they heard that David was anointed as king. So this is incredible. So the Navi says so literally, literally right after David is anointed over king over the entire Jewish people. So the Plishtim hear about this. David is king, and the Plishtim decide to go to battle against King David. They decide to go to battle. David HaMelech mobilizes his forces. Asks Hakadosh Baruch will I be successful or not? The Ribbon Sholom says yes. David goes out to war and he is able to go ahead and vanquish and defeat the Plishtim. So says Rashi something amazing. Says Rashi that this capital, Lama Ragshu Goyim, Oleumim Ye Gurik, right? When the Navi says, when the capital says, Why have nations gathered? And why do, kingdom thi- why do kingdoms think vain things? yis aritz, The kings of a land stand up and nobles take counsel together against the Lord and against His Anointed One. So Rashi understands that David HaMelech wrote this capital in response to the Plishtim massing their forces and marching on David right after he, he is the newly, the newly anointed king over all of Israel. Now you have to understand something. I think what Rashi is trying to convey to us is something incredibly profound. David, see, what is David Amalek asking? Why do nations go to war against other nations? Really? King David needs to ask that question. That 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 dynamic is as old as time itself. Remember again. How far do we have to get into Baratheus before we find warring nations? Right? So we have the four kings against the five in the times of Avram Avinu. So the fact that nations go to war, that literally is as old as the concept of nationhood. Whether it's a war for land, whether it's a war for riches, for resources, for pride, whatever it might be. Is David HaMelech lamenting the fact that nations go to war? Because that would seem strange. Perhaps what David HaMelech is lamenting is as follows. If you're David HaMelech, so understand what just happened. In source number five, representatives of essentially 10 of the 12 tribes, because remember the two tribes of Yehuda and Benjamin were pretty much aligned with David already. So 10 tribes, representatives of the 10 tribes come to David HaMelech and they say, we want you to be our king. What an incredible moment. What an incredible moment! You know, David has been on the run from Shaul for eight years. Eight years he was running away from Shaul. His father, his father-in-law. It's not like Shaul was was some his father-in-law. But besides all of the tragedy, remember again, there, there's, this. You know, sometimes we read these stories, and because we know them, we often don't fully appreciate the human tragic component of all this. You know, David had a wife, a young woman by the name of Michal, right? David has to run away from her. In order to save his own life and not put her in peril. What did her father do? Her father gave her to another man. Father gave her to another man. The the Navi tells us Palti ben Laish. Palti ben Laish was a righteous man. He was married to Michal for 22 years. Never touched her. Never laid a hand on her. Not because he didn't desire her but because he recognized that she was the wife. She was was legally the wife of David Amalek. But Shaul in his anger and his hatred towards David, a lot of tragedy. Running away, David Amalek's entire family was slaughtered, so much human tragedy, and now it finally appears that the story has come to an end, right? Because now, Shaul is dead, Shaul is dead, David is the king, not asserting himself over anyone, the representatives of the 10 tribes come to David, be our king. It finally sounds like the story and this trauma is coming to an end. And what happens right after David HaMelech is anointed as king? The Plishtim heard that David is king. Oh, there's a new Jewish king. The Plishtim mobilized to war. And ultimately again, David HaMelech writes this capital. And when you understand the context, you, you almost hear the desperation in his voice. Lama rag Why do the nations have to gather up against us? This isn't an idea like, why do nations go to war? This is David HaMelech lamenting the reality of the human condition, which is just in the moment when it looks like the sea of life is still and calm, just in the moment when it looks like every, I could catch my breath, right? How many of us are waiting to catch our breath? Waiting to catch my breath for 45 years, right? When when am I going to catch my breath? Right right in the moment when I think I'm going to catch my breath, something else happens. Something else happens. Almost as if there is no real tranquility in life. And Davod HaMelech, so Davod Rakshukai why? You, You can't wait a week? You can't wait a month. There's, there's no honeymoon. There, there, there's nothing. Give, 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 give me a year. I've been on the run for eight years. I've been a criminal, for, been thought of as a criminal for eight years. I've lost everything. I've lost my wife. I've lost my father-in-law. Yonatan was David Amalek's best friend in the entire world. I've lost my family. I've lost everything. There was civil war amongst the Jewish people. Finally now, things are healed. You can't catch our breath. Make a lechaim have a little kiddish, a little, a, a little something. No. Vaishmu, pushed him, pushed him here, ultimately again, and they march. And this becomes an incredible metaphor for life, right? Because is this not how life itself operates? You know, it's interesting because I think if you ask most people, like, what are you working towards in life? So, so many times, so I think it's interesting, I always find it interesting to hear like what people, how people answer that question. I find it interesting to hear how, how I answer that question. And usually I answer that question different ways each day. Like, what, not, not, not what do you have to do today, but what are, you, what are you working towards in life? So often you'll hear different kinds of answers, right? So some people are working to make more money. Some people are working to learn more Torah. But a lot of times what you find is people are working towards tranquility. If, if you ask me, like what what I want out of life, I want tranquility. I, I want life to be calm. I, I just, I, I'm, you know, somebody. I, I mentioned this in a different year. Somebody who was experiencing a lot of a lot of difficulty in life. I, who I spoke to, I was talking to, and the person said, "Oh, this is actually. I'm sorry. The, it was actually before Rosh Hashanah. Before Yomim Noraim." And I was talking with this person, and it was very interesting. The person said, still, but I want a bracha. So I said, first of all, I don't give brachas. I'm not, I'm not a rabbi, I'm just a simple guy. I can give you people you can go to, to brachas. But she said, the person said, no, I like a bracha. Said, I'm not going to give you one, but I'm just curious. What do you want a bracha for? I want my life to be boring. The person said, I want my life to be boring. And at first, I was so startled by this. You want your life to be boring? So I understood this person, this person had an overwhelming year. Over a a lot of times, a lot of difficulty. And what this person was saying is, I appreciate the blessing of boring. But she said, when I was young, I wanted excitement. This, that, go here, go this, go that, accomplish this. Now, if I could know that tomorrow is going to be just like today, and next week is like this week, and nothing happens, and it's boring, that would be the best I could possibly receive. And I was very taken by that, very taken by that and came to understand the profundity in that statement, because at the end of the day, I don't know that we want boring. I understood what this person was saying that she wanted boring. But I think a lot of us, what we really yearn for is just tranquility. is just calm. It's just calm. I'm tired of always dealing with the peaks and the valleys and the ups and the downs and the unexpected turns and I just want calm and people articulate this desire in different ways so for some people you know what I want is I want to retire but retirement like I I don't think most people actually really want to retire vaharaya a lot of people retire and they're a mess they're a mess they don't know what to do with themselves they, their family is like, you're always around, you're always here, why are you always here? It's like, don't you have somewhere to go, somewhere to be? You know, it's a big problem, it's a big problem because people think they wanna retire, but then suddenly again, they have eight hours a day on their hands, which was car- which was presently filled by a whole bunch of things. But my, my wife tells me all the time, she's like, you're never retiring, she's like, you're never going to retire, she said, because Whatever, there's going to be a lot of other consequences. So keep working, keep working, keep working. So you could do other things if you want. And, and the truth is I'm a cobblestone myself also. To have eight hours of unstructured time, What do you, now some people could do it and they could do it very well, but we all know retirement disaster stories. People suddenly your whole life becomes about your grandkids. You this, okay, grandkids are beautiful, but they've got their own lives. Your children have their own lives. So retirement is nice. You can have more family time, but unless you find a way, anyway, so my, my, my friends, when people talk about wanting to retire, I often think that deep down what they're really looking for is tranquility. It's not, it's my, my, <coughs> my job is stressful, my job is difficult. I want tranquility. Or when people say, you know, my, what I want more than anything is a vacation. Even vacationing is nice, but no one could vacation in perpetuity. Even if some days it would feel great to go on a vacation for the rest of my life, no one really wants that. But what I'm looking for is tranquility. That's really what I'm looking for. I'm looking for tranquility out of life. And here's the incredible part. All right. let's so say here's the incredible irony. The one thing that most of us want more than anything is the one thing that's absolutely unattainable in this world. You can't attain perpetual tranquility. No one attains perpetual tranquility, which is why we have to stop looking for it. And we have to stop desiring it because it is counterproductive to spend your life pining for something you will never have. There is no such thing. Think about this in just a moment. Who do you know? Right, think about it. Do you know anyone in your life who has perpetual tranquility. And I wanna caution you, you might be thinking to yourself, yes. Yes, I know that person. I guarantee you, you're wrong. And I'll tell you why. When you know someone who you think has perpetual tranquility, all you see is their life from the outside out. You have no idea what is happening on the inside. As someone who is invited to the inside of many people's lives, no one has perpetual tranquility. Everyone has their peaks and valleys. Everyone has their challenges. And this is so incredibly important because we have to reframe our expectations of life. Because I'll tell you what ends up happening is people go into life. <laughs> we go into life with this expectation of perpetual tranquility. I have a plan. Number one, I have a plan, and it's a really good plan. And how is life going to play out? Everything is going to go according to plan. Now, where do we get this mindset that everything goes according to plan in life? Right? In other words, where, where, where do where, what, because remember, it's a derivative of the quest for perpetual tranquility. See, if I have in my mind that there is the possibility for perpetual tranquility, then I can have the idea in my head that I can make a plan and life goes according to the entire plan. And then what ends up happening? Amazingly, something incredible happens, which is life doesn't go according to plan. And something amazing happens. You see people in life fall apart. They fall apart. When life doesn't go according to plan, they just... They, they, they fall. They can't, I, I can't believe it. I can't believe the plan didn't materialize the way I thought. I can't, it was such a good plan. It was such a holy plan. It was such a well-thought-out plan, such a well- executed plan. I can't believe it. And remember, life doesn't go according to plan in a variety of different ways. Sometimes life doesn't go according to plan because there's tragedy. Sometimes life doesn't go according to plan because they're set back. Sometimes life doesn't go according to plan because of a whole variety of different circumstances. How do you deal with life when it doesn't go according to plan? So people who have an expectation of perpetual tranquility, when life doesn't go according to plan, they fall apart. They fall apart and usually, not usually, but can become totally non-functional. But if you approach the journey of life with a recognition that there is no perpetual tranquility. There is no perpetual tranquility. At, at the end, there's no perpetual tranquility and life never, never goes according to plan. I mean, your plan. Life never goes according to plan. It was always a plan. Life never goes with plan. Then suddenly when you find yourself beset by setback, I'm able to handle it. Because it's not that my world has come crumbling down, it's that something happened that I did not expect, something happened that I did not, but that's okay because life never goes according to plan and at the end of the day there is no perpetual tranquility. If I accept those two realities, no perpetual tranquility, which then by definition means life doesn't go according to plan, when the quote unquote setbacks occur, I am emotionally armed to deal with them. And and again, this is so incredibly important because you, know, you see people, and it's interesting, you see people who are constantly in the midst of um, what's the right word? Of theological challenge. They're always why, 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 why is God doing this? A little that you're, you a person who lives life with the expectation of of perpetual tranquility. Person who lives life with the expectation that the plan always that everything goes according to plan. When things don't, it throws you. It throws you, and it throws you to the point where sometimes you question everything. You question God. You question yourself. Why is this happening? But if you have no expectation of perpetual tranquility and therefore you realize that life does not go according to plan you could develop the greatest skill in life which we call roll with the punches because there are always punches and there are always setbacks and there are always missteps and when you have no expectation of perpetual tranquility you recognize your life will be a series of peaks and valleys if you accept that then you are so much better prepared To deal with the valleys of life. It doesn't make the valleys easy, but at least it doesn't bring you to your knees. It doesn't paralyze you because of some feeling that, oh my gosh, I can't believe the tranquility that I wanted. We have to set our expectations. And what's happening over here in this capital is really exactly that. And and that is what is so incredibly amazing about this capital. David Hamelech, he it's almost as if, it's almost as if. Like for a moment after he's crowned as king over the Jewish people, what does he expect? What does he expect? Again, if I were to unmute you, you would say perpetual tranquility, right? It, it's almost as if that was oh, incredible. There was so much Trump, so much turbulence, so much difficulty. Baruch Hashem, Shechiano, Vikimano, Vigiano, it's done. And now, ah, now it's going to be smooth sailing. And 3.2 two minutes later, the plishtim are massing at the border. The plishtim are massing at the border and David HaMelech, to a certain degree, begins to lose it a little bit. What is going on over here? Why are they doing this? Really David? You're asking why are they doing this? First of all David, Remember, you were a warrior. You waged many battles against foreign enemies, so you know that nations go to war. So what does it mean? Why why, why are the nations rising up? Why are they coming? Really? Really? But David HaMelech is not asking about why the nations go to war. David HaMelech is readjusting himself. He's recognizing now in the beginning, in in Pasuk Aleph, David HaMelech has an expectation of perpetual tranquility. And then what do you see what happens over over the course of the capital? David Hamelech works through this. He works through this. And he recognizes that life is not filled with perpetual tranquility, that nothing ever really fully goes according to plan. And how does the capital end? Ashrei Kolchosebo. Praiseworthy are those who go ahead and put their trust in you, Baruch Hu. Because here's the amazing part of life. As much as at the end of the day there is no perpetual tranquility, as much as there's nothing perpetual in this world, the one thing which is a constant in this world is the Ribbono Shalolim. And therefore, if you cast your lot with God, if you put your faith in God, if you establish a relationship with the Ribbono Shalolim, that is your anchor in an uncertain world. So, I was very just. So, so the power of this capital, the power of this capital is David Hamelech working through the dynamic of the human condition. He begins the capital in this euphoric state. Life is great. Everything is wonderful. Chalal Yisrael is healed. I'm the king. We're going we're gonna, to you know, tend our wounds and move forward. And everything is going to be fine. And then a minute and a half later, all Gehenna breaks loose. The plishta are at the border. They're about to attack. And David HaMelech begins to lose it. I don't understand. I thought life was going to be easy. I thought it was going to be tranquility. And then he composes himself and he works through it. Wrong expectation. There's no perpetual tranquility. But the good news is I have the Rebono Shalolam. And if I have the Rebono Shal olam, Ashrei Kol Chosei he is my rock. He is my anchor. He is what keeps me steady through anything and everything in life. And I think this capital is incredible on two levels. Number one is to see that David HaMelech is this is going to sound like a strange statement but is just like us. What do I mean by that? I mean, he, of course, he's not just like us, right? He's the father of the messianic lines. He's a little bit different than us. But I mean, from a human condition perspective, David Amalek has that moment where, like, he loses it. You know, he has a little bit of, like, a weak moment where he has a little bit of, like, a, like, a, like a breakdown, not, not, not in a clinical sense, but just like, he loses it. Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening? And then he does something amazing, which is, he does a little bit of self-therapy. And what's good self-therapy? When you talk things out with yourself. I'm gonna save you $150 an hour, right? You could be your own therapist. Now, sometimes a person needs the help of another person because sometimes, again, I just, you know, sometimes when you're, when, when you're challenged with something, you can't see your way out of your challenge. So sometimes you need another person. But sometimes really all you need to do is talk through your issues. And it doesn't necessarily even have to be with someone else. It could be with yourself. Talk it through. Why am I feeling this way? What, why, 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 why am I so upset? What is it that is causing and eliciting this reaction? And you see capital Bey's, like a lot of Kapitel is David HaMelech's self-therapy i'm so upset i can't believe this is happening why am i so upset because i thought everything was going to be perfect after i was crowned no more civil war well one second is that a fair expectation that everything is going to be perfect you know what you're right it's not it's not that's not the way the world works no one has perpetual no one has perpetual serenity that's not that's just not the way that it works okay so how do i deal with this what do i do okay so now i know i'm going to talk this through David HaMelech works through this dynamic by with self-therapy, talking this out, recognizing his relationship with HaKadosh Baruch was the ultimate stabilizer and the thing ultimately again which is his anchor and his rock in an otherwise tumultuous world. Now I want to just draw your attention to one more piece because to me I, I find this capital I find this capital very meaningful which is why we're back in parak bays because this dynamic i think is one that speaks to all of us albeit in different ways right albeit in different ways but we all have these moments where life doesn't go according to plan my perpetual serenity has been ruined and life as i wanted it to go has been a little bit upended and remember I know that's a dramatic statement, but that can mean a variety of different things. It could be like tragedy, or it could be again, I wanted to use my day in a certain way and something happened and now it's been turned on its head. How do you deal just with this dynamic? So we saw it so far, acceptance, right? In life in general, you have to create realistic expectations. So if your expectation is for perpetual serenity, if your expectation is that everything is going to be according to plan, you are going to be very frustrated throughout the journey of life. But if you readjust your expectations, then no, hopefully some things will go according to plan, but most probably won't. But here's the great part. As we get older, I think many of us learn it's actually great that it works out that way because the plan that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has for me is often a million times better than the plan I had for myself. Now, it doesn't mean that God's plan is easier, and it doesn't mean that God's plan is without pain and without suffering, but at the end of the day, the plan that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has for me is much better than the plan I had for myself. But there's one more piece. If you take a look in number 7 on your sheet. So this is actually quite beautiful because one of the, one of the, most, profound, one of the most profound statements in this particular capital is in is in verse 11. Which literally translated means, serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu with fear. And rejoice with quaking. Okay, so what, 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 is, what does this mean? First of all, again, the, the rejoice with quaking. So I, I understand what it means to serve Hashem with fear. I can understand that dynamic, even though fear is an interesting thing. You know, Rabbe Yitzchak says, Yira doesn't mean fear. There can't be an obligation to serve Hashem with fear. Why not? Says Levi Yitzchak. Because fear is an emotion which pushes you away from something. Right, I fear fire. So because I fear fire, therefore I'm going to keep my distance from an open flame. The whole essence of the Jew is to try to come close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So to serve Hashem with fear, well, fear pushes me away, but my whole job is to come close. Okay, so Rabbi Yitzchok says, fear, Yira means awe. awe Awe is different than fear when i have awe of something it's on a pedestal it's a little bit separate and removed from me but i'm not scared of it i want to keep coming closer to it but if you take a look at number 11 i'm going to skip a little bit if you look at number 11, the Gemara says something absolutely amazing. The Gemara says, So what does it mean to serve Hashem with yira, with awe, and to rejoice with trepidation or with quaking? My What does that mean, rejoice with trepidation? That's really what it means. Or rejoice with fear. What what what, what does that mean? So listen to this Gemara. It teaches us that wherever there is rejoicing, there has to be some element of trepidation as well. The Yumar tells a story. So Mar So Mar, the son of Ravina, so Mar made a Hasana for his son. So Mar's son was getting married. So this is interesting. So Mar, the father of the chasana, saw that the rabbis were getting a little too wild at the wedding. It happens, you put a lot of rabbis in a room and who knows, what is going to happen, right? So, so the the, the rabbanim are getting way too wild at the chasana. What happened? I see Casa murka bas <laughs> arba me'azuzi the tavakamayo. Mar took a very expensive piece of crystal. A very expensive piece a very expensive glass literally expensive white crystal that was worth 400 zos an exorbitant amount of money the the, the, the you know water for crystal right the most the most expensive crystal mar took it he threw it down on the ground and it smashed Vatsivu, evil literally means that abonin became sad now what that means is you know, you know, you always see this, you know, whenever you whenever if you're at a chasana or or if you're at a restaurant, and what happens when a glass breaks, right? What happens when glass breaks in that moment? Silence. Silence. So when people saw that Mark took a very expensive crystal glass and he threw it down on the ground, so the people stopped. They stopped, they recognized, okay, maybe the simcha is getting a little bit out of hand. So they simply stopped. So the Gemara says, what happened? Ravashi Ashi Avedilu Lebrei. So Rav Ashi made a chasana for his son. Same thing, He saw the rabbis were getting a little bit too wild, right, a little bit too wild, a little bit too crazy. I see He did the same thing. He took a piece of crystal, a very expensive piece of crystal, threw it on the ground and it broke, and Ve'atzidu means they became sad, they recognized that things were getting a little bit too carried away, they calmed down and they stopped. Tosis in number 12 says something amazing. Aysi mikan lishbar says this is the source of the custom, that we break a glass under the chuppah. Really quite amazing. The source that we break a glass under the chuppah, now the truth is there are many levels of symbolism as to why we break a glass under the chuppah. You know, perhaps the most notable and well-known one is Zechel the Chorban. Ultimately, to remember the destruction of the Beis HaMiktesh, however, it's interesting to see that they may have broken a glass under the chuppah, or at a, a chassanah, even before the Beis HaMiktesh was destroyed. So why would they be breaking a glass at the chassanah? So Tosas explains in order to temper the simcha. In order to temper the Simcha, that in general, we, we, we all know this, and the truth is, you know, we're, we're coming off Purim, and Purim is probably one of the best examples of this. You know, in, 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 in Hebrew, we have two words. One is called Simcha, and one is Hololos. Simcha means joy, but it means a joy that is embedded in a construct of meaning. Holulus means frivolity. Frivolity. It looks like joy. But it's not embedded in any kind of meaning. So ultimately, again, so when the when David HaMelech says "ivdu as Hashem b'ira so the Gemara understands that what King David was teaching us was when you celebrate in life, make sure your celebration, make sure your celebration, is embedded in a framework of holiness, so that it's real simcha and that it's not Hololos, that it's not for Valti nor of Pam, Was Yashiva of Torah Vadas, Zechitz said something amazing. when he was talking to Bachrem in Yeshiva, he said, if you want to know if your Purim was holy or not, coming off Purim, if your Purim was holy or not, did you make it, were you early for Shachris the next morning? If you're early for Shachris the next morning, that's a good Purim. If you can't wake up for Davening the next morning, then you didn't have Simcha, you had holulus, and it's inc- it's incredible. I had this discussion with my boys, you know. Baruch So I said, I mo- said, this year, if you want to know if you're having a good Purim, are you gonna in Kabbalah Shabbos like a mensh? If you're gonna in Kabbalah Shabbos like a mensh, that's a good Purim. If you're gonna be slobbering over the guy next to you probably not the best Purim. So that's what Tavra HaMelech is saying. HaShem v'gilu means that when you celebrate in life, your celebration must be embedded, must be embedded in a framework of meaning. But perhaps Dabr was teaching us something as well. That perhaps Tavra says, if HaShem v'gilu You see, again, the first part of the Pasach is pretty understandable. Serve HaShem with awe. I got that. Whatever that means, I, I can understand it. But what does it mean to rejoice with trepidation? So again, the Gemara says rejoice with trepidation means make sure that your rejoicing is not unchecked. Unchecked Simcha becomes hololos, becomes frivolity. So Gilu adda, rejoice with trepidation, make sure that your rejoicing is in a framework. But perhaps what Tavra is also telling us is something else. Gilu adda also means rejoice with trepidation, with trembling, because no full well that the simcha you are experiencing is fleeting. Well, what 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 do I mean by this? You know, the Arizal says something absolutely amazing. He said I think I mentioned this in, in, in before. The Arizal says, why is it that people cry at a simcha? Right? Why do people cry at a simcha? Right? People cry. I mean, some people are criers. They cry at, at anything. Right? Somebody gets an aliyah on Shabbos, and the the you know the floodgates open. Whatever it is, but Everybody, cry. I think everybody is moved emotionally, you know, at a, at a wedding, at a bar mitzvah, at a bas mitzvah, you know, whatever it is. Why is it that people cry to Simcha? And the Ari says, like, it's strange because tears, te- you know, we say tears of joy, but the truth is crying itself, right? I'll give you an example. In the Torah, we never see an example of crying from happiness. In Tanakh. there's no such thing. Avram Avinu cried tears of joy when Yisraq was born. We never find it. Now lest you say, well, the Torah never speaks out emotions, that's not true. Because when Sarah Imenu died in the beginning of Parshish Chayi Sarah, what does the Pasek say? Avraham the v'livkosa. The Torah tells us that Avram cried over the death of Sarah, but yet nowhere do we ever find someone crying tears of joy. Why is that? Because crying is not really associated with joy. Crying is associated with sadness. But yet, amazingly enough, we've all cried tears of joy at different times in life. So there he says, what's the Pshat? And he says something absolutely amazing. Get ready for this. There he says, do you know why we cry at Simchas, at joyous occasions? Because deep down I know that this won't last. Deep down the Neshama knows that these few moments of Simcha, they'll go, they're going to go, and challenge will come, because That's the inevitability of life. The inevitability of life is, and and, you know, people joke, people joke, you know, you think about a wedding and how much time and effort goes into a wedding. I'm not even talking about the money, but how much time and effort and planning. And then something amazing happens months, 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 five hours. The whole thing is done. Right? Five hours the entire It's an incredible thing in life. You build up, you build up, you build up, and a couple of hours, the whole thing is done. Says the Arizal, that's not true just like on a linear time level. It's true on an experiential level as well. You know, when a person has the privilege to be in a Simcha, and especially again, if it's a Simcha, your Simcha, or, or an immediate family member, like that Simcha in those moments, it's the totality The totality of your existence. There is nothing else happening in the world except that simcha in that moment. And the Ariza says, I cry. Do you know why I cry? Because I know I can't hold on to this. I can't hold on to it. That in a few minutes it's going to be over and I know that there's challenge that's waiting for me. And I know that there's adversity that's waiting for me. Because zohi hachayim, that is life. So we cry during simchas, because at the end of the day, I know that this is not the rest of my life. As much as I would love to hold on to these feelings of elation, as much as I'd love to be blanketed by this joy for the rest of my life, I know it's not like that. I know that ultimately, again, there is no perpetual serenity. I know that there is no perpetual tranquility. I know it, I know it, and I cry. I think I'm crying tears of joy, and I am crying tears of joy, but deep down those tears come from the fact, I'm gonna try as hard as I can to hold onto these moments, but hey, you can't freeze time, and also simcha will inevitably be followed by adversity because that is the nature of the human condition. And so ultimately again, David HaMelech tells us, which by the way is very important, because what does this do? What this really tells us is if I, if I accept the fact that there is no enduring tranquility, there's no perpetual tranquility, and I know that I can't hold on to the Simcha, and the Simcha will go and adversity will come, you know what that does command us to do? To maximize those moments of Simcha. That when something beautiful happens for you in life, don't be distracted. You know, we, so many of us like we're distracted in life. We we live life, where we're just we're just distracted. We never really focus on what is at hand. Our mind is always somewhere else, right? Again, I, I tell you the truth, I I give this, I give I I mean this is credit to Mrs. Shulman and to Witt and to all of you. I cannot believe this sheer has lasted so long on, on Zoom. And I'll tell you why. Because every other Zoom group that I've been a part of, at this point in time, you know what people are doing when they're, when they're on Zoom? You know what people, most people are doing when they're Zoom? Is they're usually answering their emails also. Now maybe some of you are doing that also, okay, it's okay. Right? But usually that's what people are doing. Why? Because like, All right, come on, come on, like what else, what else? We're all about multitasking. Everybody's all about multitasking. Multitasking has its place. But you have to be you have to be careful not to multitask life. Because you know what happens when people multitask life? They miss out on everything. You know, I'll tell you something amazing. This this will just be, be between us. You know, Bar Hashem. Many wonderful things happened during this pandemic as well. So Bar Hashem, we had our first grandchild. And I often joke with my wife that my granddaughter, I think, is like the most photographed baby on the face of the earth. Because between my, between my daughter and my son-in-law, like everything, everything is a video and a thing and a that, and you know, I, I try to be a good father and father-in-law and not put, I, 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 I don't, like once my kids are adults, if they want my opinion, they could come and they could ask me for it. But what I really wanna tell them is, just make sure that you're not so busy videoing everything, that you forget to be there with your child, it's great. Believe me, I, 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 I'm, I'm a, but like, make sure that you don't experience everything with your child from the other side of the phone, because it's so easy to be the photographer, and it's so easy just to capture. You know, it's and it's beautiful because everything is captured for the parents, for the grandparents. Can I know how this little girl has for great grandparents? Baruch Hashem, you know, it, it's it's incredible, but you could live life. Focusing on taking the picture, or you could live life being in the picture. And that's not a question of semantics. That's a question of where you place yourself in the dynamic of life. And Davon HaMelech says, When you rejoice, rejoice with trepidation. What's the trepidation? The trepidation is, this is going to go by so quickly. And there's no... Perpetual tranquility. I learned that lesson a long time ago. We've all learned that lesson. There's no perpetual serenity So when the Simcha presents itself live in that moment Don't be distracted someone else will get the video and by the way if they don't get the video it's okay also It's okay. I had to do this on Purim. There were some people and everybody likes to take videos. I said stop just stop Just be in the moment just be in the moment. I there's not gonna be a video. By the way, I'm pretty sure the world existed for millennia without videos. And and somehow, some way, humanity has made it. So I'm pretty sure if we don't capture every single thing, we're still gonna be okay. Gilubera adulter, rejoice with trepidation. And this is the lesson that Tavaramal teaches us in this incredible capital. Many lessons. Number one, when you encounter a challenge in life, work it through. Don't be embarrassed to talk to yourself. Maybe not in front of other people, maybe find a private spot to do it. But sometimes you'd be surprised what you could accomplish when you talk your problems out by yourself with yourself. Lesson number one. Lesson number two, set proper expectations for life. Because if your expectations are wrong, you will run into an incredible amount of frustration. David Amalek began this capital with expectations of ongoing tranquility, perpetual tranquility. And then he realizes wrong expectation, because if you go into life with an expectation of perpetual tranquility, you will be terribly frustrated and frustrated pretty early on into the journey. So instead, instead, Da says, readjust your expectations. Life doesn't go according to plan. There is no perpetual tranquility, but Asheri Kol Chosei Bo But put your faith in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, establish your relationship with Hashem, come close to Hashem, that's your anchor. And last lesson, of how do you deal with it? How do you deal with this reality that there is no perpetual tranquility? Because if you think about it, it's like a little bit anxiety provoking. There's no perpetual tranquility. That means I'm definitely going to have to deal with adversity. Something is going to go wrong. Something's not going to go according to plan. How do I deal with that? Two words. Gilu b'ra'ada. How do you deal with it? Rejoice with trepidation. Number one, leaving aside the Gemara. Rejoice trepidation. How do I deal with it? Be in the moment. Be in the moment. When your moments of Simcha present themselves, be in the moment. Be on the right side of the camera. Be in the photograph. Don't spend your life being the photographer. Appreciate the moments of Simcha. And by the way, the moments of Simcha are all around us. You know, it's supposed to be 55 degrees today. What Simcha? What Simcha? So you take a few moments and you stand outside and you close your eyes and you look up into the sun and you feel the warmth of the sun. It's great. It's great. Is it gonna solve your problems? Probably not, unless you're working on your tan, right? It's not gonna solve your problems. But at the end of the day, it's a beautiful moment of Simcha. Grab your moments, because they're fleeting, because tomorrow it might rain and it might be 30 degrees and it might whatever. Grab your moments whenever you can when you're celebrating a life-cycle simcha, just don't worry about capturing the moments for all all posterity, but capture them for yourself in the presence. Maximize your moments of simcha. Look for moments of simcha. You come home and there's another person in the house with a smile happy to see you, how lucky you are. You pick up the phone and there's a friend you could speak to. How lucky you are. You have money in your, in your wallet. How lucky you are. You have your general health pandemic aside. How lucky you are. Appreciate, your sim- appreciate the simcha in life. Because you're not going to get perpetual tranquility no matter how much you're looking for it. But what you can get are episodic bursts of incredible joy and happiness. But that's only Gilu Bira adha. That's only if you rejoice with trepidation. Rejoice with the trepidation that the moments of rejoicing are fleeting. They're not few and far between. They're all over the place, but they're fleeting. So you have to grab them, appreciate them, and maximize them. And when you bolster yourself with those episodic bursts of joy, that allows you to go ahead and really embrace the challenges of life as well. If I bolster myself with the moments of joy, that I'm able to meet the challenges of life just a little bit better. This is the lesson of David HaMelech in Kapitel Beis. And now we understand, by the way, the Gemara said, any Kapitel that David HaMelech says, Ashrei twice, Ashrei twice, that means as a Kapitel. Th- th- this is a chapter of tilim This is a life lesson. And now we understand. Because in Perak Beis of Sefer tilim David HaMelech pretty much teaches us anything and everything we need in order to be realistic about life and ultimately in order to be successful as well. Worked for David HaMelech and, and Halavai, if we internalize these lessons, it will work for us as well. We'll stop over here for today. Wishing everyone a wonderful day, a great rest of the week, and I'm looking forward to our shear next week as well. Have a great day. Thank you all for joining.